Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome once again to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, April 26th of 2020, and this is already episode 17 of our fourth season. 17th episode in this year since the 1st of, the, of January. Well, quite a number, I think, and you know that our seasons now go for 24 episodes, so after this there will be seven more to go until we will take a short break and then start into season five. But that's still quite a few weeks away. So today our guest on the show is Richard Kaczynski. Richard Kaczynski, who I don't think need to introduce, he's one of the most important figures in North American esotericism and occultism, a prolific writer and he a prominent member of the OTO. And that's why also this show is subtitled OTO and more and much more to it there is. Right. Um, well, Welcome to everyone who is here for the first time on the Thothermis webcast uh, podcast. Um, I'm happy to have you with me here today and to all returning listeners, uh, welcome back and it's great to have you here again. You all know probably already, but I tell you again that we have a website which is on www.thoughthermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And on that website, you will find all our previous episodes. It's over 60 already. You can find not only the episodes themselves there to listen to and to download, but also to do you go to find the show notes there with more information, valuable information about all the guests that we have introduced that spoke to us about their websites, about the books we presented, all the information will be, you will be able to find there. Today, um, I want to introduce several special opportunities to you. First of all, I would like to mention, and you will hear that also in the interview, but I want to mention it here because it seems important to me. This is a special offer for our European listeners and only them, and you'll find out in a second why. There is a book by Richard Kaczynski, which I think is a really, really nice and important and big book, and I'd love to have it myself. <laughs> and it's called Forgotten Templars. A big volume, which is not cheap, I admit. Um, but the problem is that if you want to ship that book to Europe, because you can get it on Amazon or all the other outlets, um, if you want to ship this as a single volume to Europe, it costs just as much to, for, the, for the shipping than it, the book itself. 
And that's why this book is mostly unavailable in Europe. So Richard and I have set something up that might help those of you here in Europe who want to have the book. Um, if you send me an email on info at thoughthermes.com, that's info at thoughthermes.com, and let me know your details. Um, no payment details yet, please. Don't just tell me I'm interested in this and how could I get it. That's all I want to know. And if I get maybe 10 or a dozen people together who would like to get that book, we can make a order and one single shipping and then the shipping costs go down dramatically because we can split them among all those people who will get the book. So once again, we are talking about Richard Kaczynski's great book, Forgotten Templars, not available in Europe at the moment. And if you European listeners here are interested in that book and would like to get a copy, do send me an email. And as a special treat, Richard promised that he will sign personally all those copies that he will send through that channel to Europe. So I really think, think that's quite a nice opportunity. Right. Well, I have not forgotten to talk to you about becoming a patron. Don't you worry. No, you know that producing a podcast has its cost. You know that uh, the Thought Hermes podcast is fully developing and expanding and we have new ideas and new possibilities in the near future coming up and we have more and more listeners and that's great uh, so we are now beyond 2600 each week and uh, well to those big podcasts that might sound like nothing but to a little uh, occultist podcast that's quite nice and now we have 24 patrons that's gone up within the last six weeks from 8 to 24. I'm really grateful. But we're not there yet, you know. We need at least 100 and 150 to really make this all with the investments into new microphones and uh, the whole hardware that we need. Uh, we need a few more of you. We have that special tier starting at $1 per episode already. And um, there are several tiers you can pick from. So please go to Patreon, go to the Patreon page, look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast there and become a patron. Or if you prefer, go on the Thoughts Hermes website and you find a link there directly to that Patreon page I'm talking about. Also, if you prefer to do a one-off donation, just a single payment, that's really helpful as well. There's also a donation button on the website and that'll bring you to the right place. Thank you for that. Two special opportunities coming up, maybe that will incite you also uh, to become a patron. Patrons will in the future get access to special parts of experience. Um, this time, this time, it's the first time that this episode has a slightly different and slightly longer version on the Patreon, Patreon site. So if you're a patron and you're listening to this, you will have a special treat at the end of Richard's interview because one of you, as this is possible for patrons only, has asked a personal question to Richard, which he will answer. But sorry, guys, only available to patrons. That's how the game plays. And upcoming, we also have a question and answer special episode with David Beth, 
who was recently a guest on the show and he really interested many of you, many of you sent special questions in and we will do a kind of special version. I will let you know all how the access to that new uh, special version will be. Probably patrons will have a premiere access to that and a few weeks later everyone can listen to it. All right, that's all the announcements I think I wanted to make today. And now before we go into the interview with our friend Richard Kaczynski, um, I will play some music like always, but this time again, and that always makes me very happy when that's possible. It's music that's not only been selected by our interview guest, but also performed by him. Richard is also a musician. He has performed with several bands and uh, a solo on the piano as well. And he sent me three pieces of music. Well, actually it's seven but the last four i put together into one um but that we talk about later now for the time being it's a piece that he performed together with vocalist page and um yeah well he also sent me some notes to those titles and i think the easiest is i give you his notes because he explains richard explains best what the music that we are going to hear is all about and what he, his inspiration was to do it. Okay, the first piece is called Aspirations, right? And he says, I never cared for cover tunes that closely resemble the original. Why would anyone listen to an imitation? When I was invited to contribute a track to Mellow Records tribute to 1970s progressive rock band Gentle Giant, I worked with vocalist Page to reimagine their song Aspirations with a Tory Amos influence. Well, and that's exactly what we are going to hear now. Richard Kaczynski and Page reimagining Aspirations. Enjoy.
Aspirations by Richard Gajinski and vocalist Paige in a very nice remake, retake of that good old song. Yes, and Richard Gajinski is also my guest now on the upcoming interview on this episode. And as I said earlier, the episode is called OTO and More. And uh, well, we are going to talk about his activity Richard's activity within the OTO, but much more than that, where it all started with him, how he became so interested in the esoteric worlds and the occult. I personally, 
I came across his name many years ago when I got a copy of that famous book, Perdurabo, famous because to me and to many others, it was the first really, really high quality biography of Alistair Crowley. And we are going to talk about that book, of course, as well, who has really become a classic in the field. Uh, but that's not the only not the only book, of course, that Richard has produced so far. The latest ones uh, in 2019 is called Panic in Detroit, The Magician and the Motor City. Also about Crowley, but in Detroit, because Richard lives in that area. And then there is Forgotten Templars, The Untold Origins of Ordo Templi Orientes. And that book, which is already a few years old, um, I mentioned a bit earlier. So if you are in Europe, if you're interested to buy a copy, let me know and we will try to make a special deal to get those shipping costs for such a heavy book down. Okay, there are many, many more books. You'll find them all in detail on the website. And I'll post, of course, also a link to Richard's website in the show notes. Every information that you could get, you will get there from. Um, by day, as he says, by day, Richard is a social psychologist, a biostatistician and a research scientist. Uh, and in his doctoral dissertation in 93, he examined metaphysical beliefs and experiences among occult practitioners. So he is also one of those who is able to link his passion to his profession. And that's always great when people can do that. Right. Well, without further ado, I think we should just go over there to Illinois uh, or to Michigan, to be precise. Sorry about that. Sorry, guys. Michigan, of course, and to talk to Richard Kaczynski. And um, as always, after this time, about 35 minutes into the show, we will have a little break. And in that break, we're going to hear more music produced and performed by Richard. So, but for now, let's go and meet Richard Kaczynski. Here comes the interview. I am very happy to have today in front of the microphone of the Thoth Hermes podcast somebody I, I don't even think I have to introduce because I think 99.5% uh, of our audience have already been reading or listening to you. Uh, uh, Richard Kaczynski is my guest today and I'm very happy to have you here today, Richard. Hello. Nice to have you again on the Thoth Hermes podcast. Oh, it's wonderful to be back and thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I have to say why being back because you were in a very brief talk we had for just a few, maybe 10 minutes or so when you yes. were supposed to speak at a conference, which then, which I was following up and then this conference was canceled. Too bad. But at least for a few weeks, people could listen to you for a few minutes on this show. But it's about time that we do a real nice Richard Kaczynski interview on this show. Oh, um, they'll have, have her full of me by the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people want more after that. Um, Richard, um, 
Yes. The first question I usually ask my guests if they are here the first time is, well, what made you the person within the esoteric occult context that you are today? Where does it all come from in your life? What made you the Richard Kaczynski of 2020, 2020? And where did it all start? Where, uh, Tell us a little bit about your background as much as you want, of course, but mostly, of course, in the in the occult and esoteric world. Yeah, I, in a lot of ways, I feel like the esoteric and the occult has always been around me. And while I realize that would be the case for everyone of my generation, um, it seems to be like I'm, I gravitated to that more than most. But I distinctly remember just from my earliest childhood, I, I had a sister who was five years older than me, and she had some interests in things like ESP, and, and she did a report in school about witchcraft and things like that. But I can remember as a, from a very young age having this book about ESP that had like three houses, you know, a picture of three houses. And they said, here's a test you can do. You know, have, have someone think of one of the three houses and see if you can guess you know, which one they're thinking of. And so I would do this with my mother. And of course, my mother, no matter what I guessed, would say, yes, that's the one. So it made me go, wow, I've got great ESP powers. <laughs> um, but, you know, I also remember just, there was a situation where there was this TV show called In Search Of, which was a, uh, a weekly show that explored various unknown phenomena, and it was recorded, it was um, hosted by Leonard Nimoy of Star Trek. So oh, really? A, right. a very, very small Trekkie uh, as a as a wee thing. I had to, of course, watch In Search Of. Uh, there were... As I mentioned, my sister did a report on a, a local uh, Detroit area witch and came back from this interview with a deck of tarot cards and a planchette and a bunch of incense and things like this, which I found fascinating. And my sister pretty much put it in a drawer and didn't think too much of it after that. But that was you know, that forever left an impression on me. And she ultimately you know, wound up passing that along to me because of my interests. But this is a time where I would go to the grocery store with my mother. And I remember at the grocery store asking her to buy me a book. And it was the paperback edition of Francis King and Stephen Skinner's Techniques of High Magic, oh. which you, know, you would never see in a grocery store today. But it was just yeah. like, it was just everywhere. There was there was a UFO flap going on when I was in my early wow. teens. Um, That would be the early and mid 70s, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was, again, so I feel not so much like I was drawn to this so much as I was kicked down the road of this. <laughs> and, and again, as I said, you know, not, not everyone of, of, from that generation was like that, but uh, that was certainly the case for me. So I must have had some sort of predilection in that direction. And, um, and I there was a, a night where I was... I had climbed on top of my parents' roof and was watching a meteor shower. You know, so I was on the roof trying to get above the, the street lights to you know, get out of the, 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 the light noise. Mm -hmm. And while I was laying on the roof looking at the stars, I kind of went into a, uh, yeah, best, I, best I can recall it is a altered state of consciousness or a spontaneous astral projection or whatever you might want to call it. But it was kind of my my first startling sort of experience of that kind of thing. And I was off to the races from there. 
Um, I, there was a occult bookshop about five miles from where I lived and I started taking my bike there to explore things. And I very quickly went from my first visit. I bought a book on, again, ESP. The second visit, maybe two weeks later, I bought a book on Nostradamus. And then the third week I picked up Israel Regardi's The Golden Dawn. Okay. And so it went very quickly into the deep end and the bookstore owner saw something in me because he, he took me under his wing. And you know, that, the one day he said, I mean, if you really like The Golden Dawn, here's a book you should read. And he handed me Alistair Crowley's Magic and Theory in Practice, you know, the, mm-hmm. the blacked over paperback. Yeah. And yeah. my life has never been the same. And you know, he, this, this book dealer was just, was just so supportive of me. You know, I, I look back in retrospect and kind of marvel at his kindness. Um, you know, I can think of two examples. One was when I read through most of the stuff I could. And this is, you know, Kenneth Grant's books were new and coming out at the time. And, you know, you, you could find a lot of Crowley things out there. And I got to the point where I read enough. I really wanted the Equinox, but it was something that was really unaffordable. And the bookstore owner said to me, well, listen, I just got a used copy set in. And it's a hundred dollars. I'll sell it. I'll sell it to you for a hundred dollars. And I said, ah, that's, you know, again, I'm just, I'm a kid. I get, you know, $5 a week allowance, I, mm-hmm. I can't afford that. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll sell you one volume at a time for $10. So every two weeks I went through with my allowance and I bought a volume. And when I got to volume nine, he just presented me volume 10 as a gift. So um, I said the Equinox cost me $90. Um, and the, the other thing I recall is that there was a, the section on Tantra, he would, he would not let minors into that part of the bookstore. <laughs> it, was, it was just one bookcase, but you know, right. that, was, that was forbidden. But sure. you know, I had carte blanche and he, uh, you know, I was about 14 years old, 15, 14. He sold me a copy of Nick Douglas and Penny Slinger's book, Sexual Secrets. Oh. And for a, I don't know, a, a young person just ent- beginning to enter puberty, reading this very spiritual take on sexuality was probably the healthiest thing that could have happened to me. So, At that um, early stage also. Sure. Yeah. 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 Before you yeah. could make any bad experiences that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And uh, I remember my, my, my mother was appalled that I had this book. I was going to ask, how did your parents react to all that? I mean, not only to the sexual magic thing, but to your special interest, let's say. It was, they, they, I don't think they knew what to do, you know, my, because my older sister and she, she was kind of wild. And, and so they knew how to deal with someone who was you know, running around with boys or, or doing, experimenting with drugs or whatnot. But I was having more of an intellectual rebellion and they didn't know what to do with it. They weren't, there weren't, yeah, again, I've heard all kinds of stories about people's parents taking away their books and it's like, they never would have done that. They, they valued the fact that I was smart and studious from a young age. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had, I had, you know, thousands of comic books and so I was just always reading something. And so I don't think it ever occurred to them to destroy a book. You know, they, they lived through the, you know, the world war two and they were both, you know, taken to, you know, camps by Nazis. So the idea of destroying books, I don't think was something that they, wanted to, but they would, you know, my mother, I remember asking, right. what's wrong with the religion you were raised with? Isn't it, isn't it good enough for you? Mm-hmm. And I'd say, no. And that would kind of be the end of the discussion. 
And with the with the book Sexual Secrets, uh, while she did not, you know, again, to throw away or damage any of my books, she would go into my room and turn the book around so that the spine faced inward. Um, just in the end, the off chance that one of her friends wandering into my room and saw this, she'd want them to see they had that book. Right. And, and you know, she, she would say, why do you have such a dirty book? And I would say to her, well, Ed, did you read it or did you just look at the pictures? So, um, but, but yeah, but, you know, thanks to, you know, Paul Hudson at the Middle Earth Bookshop, you know, um, you know he, he kind of steered me in the right direction and my life had never been the same since. What a great name, the Middle Earth Bookshop. Also, yeah. Um, may I ask: Is uh, did you grow up in a, in a, in an urban area, or or is, was it rather rural the area? So is that it was it was an urban area. I grew up urban. in Warren, which is a suburb of Detroit. It was a, you know, it's a kind of a boring bedroom community. Uh, one of the things I found again, I only appreciated this until later in life, but was but our local library. You know, again, just not in the university library, but just, you know, just the yeah. neighborhood library mm. had just an amazing selection of occult types of books. Mm -hmm. you know, they had things like, you know, Grimm's four volume Teutonic mythology. They had books by James Leggy and, um, you know, and books of things like the forerunners and rivals of Christianity. I remember checking out, you know, Plato's dialogues in the interlinear Greek English format wow. and just. Yeah. Things I would never have expected to find in just a tiny community library, but they had yeah. all this stuff. And I think, again, that was just part and parcel of the time I grew up where all this, this stuff just seemed to be everywhere. It's interesting because I'm, as I'm asking this question to many of my guests here, the weird question that I just asked you, I get the impression that the United States, at least in, I may say, our generation, because I'm just three years older than you, if I'm right, um, this was, seems to have been quite often the case that in smaller libraries you had a person who was interested in that and apparently there were many of them at the time and who would then put up that selection and somebody like you or others would then grab that and and make their make their path out of it so to speak yeah absolutely i've often wondered who was the person who bought the books for that library yeah you know uh, another just just Not, not to take up too much time with that question, but another thing that I think is really cool is that when I was growing up um, in, in Detroit, we're basically, you know, Detroit is like one of the, or Michigan is the only place in the United States, in the continental United States or contiguous United States where you have to drive south to get to Canada. Yes, you look south yeah. to Canada, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're so, so we're, so we got Canadian television because we're so close to the border uh, living on, in the Detroit area. And one, there was this Canadian television show called Beyond Reason. And it was essentially a version of the, the program, What's My Line, where they, they would have a, a famous person on and the panelists would get to ask questions and try and guess who this person was or what their claim to fame was. But this was kind of like, again, a psychic version. So there were the three panelists would be um, an astrologer, a palm reader, and a clairvoyant. And the clairvoyant would have like some personal possession. And so each each of the three panelists would get, you know, like 60 seconds to ask questions. The other two couldn't hear the questions that the others were asking. Mm -hmm. And at the end, you know, they, they would each try and guess, you know, who, who this person was or what they were famous for. And 
you know, the show is kind of hit and miss, but there were just, there were some times where it was just astonishing. And I, st- I still remember mm-hmm. there was this one point where the astrologer was talking to this person saying, I based looking at your chart, I see a time when you were about 14 or 15 years old and you fell off a horse and broke your arm. And, you know, the panelist was just like, and their jaw literally dropped and they're like, how, where did you, where did you get that? Right. It was true. You know, mm-hmm. and and so again, that was just an example of how this stuff was just everywhere. You know, the Man Myth and Magic Encyclopedia was, you know, in, on the newsstands. You know, it was just amazing, amazing. Yeah. And, and then you you went to university after that, I, I guess. And uh, I think yes. you you started studies of social psychology. Would you call it like that in the U.S. or what? Correct. The, the, yes. Yeah, so yes. what what brought you to that, and why why what in, incited you to go that path? Well, when I when I went to, when I started my undergraduate studies, I had contemplated three possible uh, paths. One was to take a degree in music, but I've you know, played piano since I was four years old. So I figured, okay, I, I don't know that I necessarily need to pursue that as an education. And I had kind of a similar feeling pursuing English. Uh, I had been writing since I was very small as well, and it was just something that I loved from the beginning of my life. And I, my first day of classes in my, my, psych, my first psychology class in my first semester, my professor of, of psychology said, if you want to be a writer, don't be an English major because I'll tell you how to write and blah, blah, blah. And they'll just ruin whatever style you have. I was, oh my gosh, I'm not going to do that then. <laughs> and uh, so I settled on psychology and the, and there was kind of a twofold reason being that Again, the idea being I can already play piano, I can always write, and those are things I feel passionate about. But you know, if I'm not going, if I'm not able to make a living doing that, I will at least have credentials and something else that will pay my bills. Mm-hmm. And the reason I chose psychology in particular was because of my interest in metaphysics and the occult and all of that. I was very curious to what extent psychology and the study of psychology can shed some light on all of that. Right. And so there sure. I went. Sure. I come back to that right away. But before we go there, just a little, a little, uh, let's open just a little section on music because you just talked about being a musician and we've played already before that interview a piece where you perform m- music and at half time, so to speak, of this interview, there'll be the next. So maybe it's a good time just to say our listeners a little bit about how you came into music, what, what's music for you today and what kind of music you perform. All right. Well, I, much as I can point to my older sister a little bit in my interest in the occult, I can also say the same with my music. She, she wanted to study piano. Mm-hmm. And so my parents, you know, purchased a piano and was going to have her take lessons. They kind of figured, well, if we're spending this money on a piano for Diane, we may as well, you know, have, have Rick take lessons too. So mm-hmm. yeah, at the age of four, I was drafted into piano lessons and I hated it and hated it and was forced to practice until about the time I was 12 years old. And my piano teacher said, well, you know, you've, you've kind of mastered the basics and, you know, the, and have gone far enough with this classical stuff that I think, you know, it's, it'd be okay if we started allowing you to go off the lesson book and pick some songs that you want to learn. And once that door opened to me being able to choose music that I liked to play, um, that really changed my attitude about about playing piano, and I came to really enjoy it. Um, the the one downside to having 
all those years of classical training, though, was that when it came to play pop music, as much as I like pop music and enjoy listening to it, it wasn't a lot of fun to play. It wasn't very challenging or very interesting. It was very repetitive. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, this is, this is fun, but not too fun. And then um, in my later teens, I put on the first album from the group Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Right. And my head just exploded because, you know, the, the keyboardist Keith Emerson mm. is just, his technique and the complexity and difficulty of what he plays is just off the scale. I mean, there's just, there's just nobody that, you know, in, in pop rock that even comes close to that. Mm-hmm. And that showed me that all that technique that I had spent, you know, my life learning could actually transfer to rock and roll in that kind of a style. And I've just been a big fan of, you know, that progressive rock sort of thing right. you know that, that style of music that borrows from classical and jazz and honky tonk and ragtime and boogie and everything else so um you know i i made a great effort not to just emulate you know the the musicians i admired but to kind of go back to the same roots right. so I, I would study you know the jazz and the boogie and the blues and all that kind of stuff uh to kind of drink from the same pool rather than kind of being a second or third generation uh you know imitation yeah, yeah, and now you're the keyboarder of that band called House of Usher, I believe, right? Um, yes, I mean that's that's a band that has been inactive for quite a while, but that was the the, the big band that I was in for a while, and we we uh, played a number a number of progressive rock festivals in the Detroit area. Right. Uh, we actually opened a international festival in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is oddly enough yeah. where I now live, you know, 20 yeah. years later. And, um, and we've also contributed some tracks to some, you know, tribute CDs of our favorite bands, such as Everson Lake and Palmer, Gentle right. Giants and so on. So, um, yeah, since I, I've moved around in my life, it's been kind of hard to kind of, um, connect yeah, myself back with other sure. musicians, sure. but I, I do have an ambition, um, to record some of the piano works of Henry Klein, who was one of the founders of Ordo Templi Orientis. He was right. also a composer and you know, his, his work is essentially unknown. And I thought it'd be kind of fun just this, this, this is a project to record that and make it out, put it out there. I don't know that there's that much of an audience dying to hear, you know, Victorian parlor music, but you know, for those who want to hear it, I'd like to be able to put it out. Sure. No, that's exciting news because it's also, of course, it links us to, to the next step that we're going to take in this interview, of course, because we have then, well, you just said, you, you started your studies, but in your mind, you wanted to become a writer, right? That was the aim uh, w- from yes. the beginning, so to speak, and the aim you Absolutely. reached also. Um, but Crowley in, in all that, so Crowley had fascinated you from the very beginning when you read uh, the first book by him. How, how did that continue? How did it all turn into writing what you write um, and your membership into the OTO? How, how did that continue, that path from the early days, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I was, I, I was for, uh, you know, I, I was a very serious reader, studier, or student, studier. <laughs> I was a, a serious uh, Now you read a German student. accent. <laughs> uh-huh. because, you, because you speak to me. Uh, there we go. That explains it all. Uh, but I, yeah, I was a serious reader, student, and you know, practitioner of uh, these sorts of magic that Crowley, the Golden Dawn, and you know, people of those ilk had uh, promoted. And 
I was also at that time that um, there was, I don't know, for lack of a better term, I would refer to as the OTO wars. There's this question of legitimacy. And we had, down in California, basically, caliphate thing. Was that the thing you mean? Or? Yeah, well, there was, well, there was you know, Kenneth Grant claimed to be head of the OTO. Right. We had Marcello Mota yeah. making a similar claim. And then there was Grady McMurtry. And that, that the name calling, my, which was came mostly from Moda, but uh, the, the, just the, the hostility and the name calling was just very distasteful to me. So I, for, for about 10 years, I just stayed to just studying and practicing on my own. Mm-hmm. And then at one point in the late eighties, a biography, I read a biography of Crowley. Um, I, I hesitate to say which one, but it was mm-hmm. so awful mm-hmm. that, um, I was, I was on the plane flying back from vacation where I found this and reading this book and this little voice in my head said, wow, this is so bad. You could do a better book than that. Mm-hmm. And then the voice said, why don't you? <laughs> and that's where it started. Um, and that so, start of Perdurabo or? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, the one one of the results of that, so kind of tying back to you know, your question about Ordo Templariantis, was that mm-hmm. as part of my research, I was able to obtain transcripts of the trial between Marcello Moda and uh, Weiser Books mm-hmm. over, uh, you know, this is essentially the court case that established the that, that OTO as run by Grady McMurtry, was the legally recognized successor to Mm -hmm. Crow's OTO and holder of his copyrights. Mm -hmm. And when I read this, you know, whatever doubts I had disappeared because essentially both sides laid out their argument and Moda's argument kind of came down to, well, I was... Germer's student, and he was going to make me head of the OTO, and the paperwork that he was going to send got intercepted by the Brazilian Secret Service because they didn't want me to be able to do this. And, mm-hmm. and so it's like this big conspiracy theory sort of explanation for why he had no proof of his authority in OTO. Right. And meanwhile, you know, Grady McMurtry and his crew of people basically said, listen, you know, when we found out that Carl Germer, who was Crowley's successor in OTO, mm-hmm. died in the 60s. You know, we didn't find out for a couple of years because he was, he had just essentially, everything was inactive yeah. for yeah. a large, large part of his tenure. Mm-hmm. And when they found out that he died, essentially all the people who were still surviving from the old Agape Lodge in the 1940s all got back into touch with each other and said, we need to restart this. Mm-hmm. And so that the, so that the members of the only existing lodge at the end of Crowley's life all got together and restarted this um, for me was, was, you know, the end of the argument. This is, there's no, there's mm-hmm. no question, you know, who, who mm-hmm. the successor group who was. Successor, yeah. mm-hmm. And so that, that was kind of what led me to finally put aside my hesitation and, and take initiation. And that was in 87, if I'm, if I'm right, right? Your, um, your yeah, 87 or 88, or around mm-hmm. that, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was, and, I, was a, I was a corresponding member for a couple of years because there, no, there was no uh, local body near me where I could take initiation. So, you know, I, I, it kind of depends on where you're, you'd count from when I became, became sure. a corresponding sure. member or actually uh, an initiate. 
Sure, sure. And that means 33 years, basically, of membership to the OTO, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and well, two questions about that. How has over those 33 years, I don't say how has the OTO changed? That might be too difficult a question and you don't, if you want to answer that too, but if you don't want to understand, but how has uh, being a member of the OTO, not just you, uh, but how has that changed ever since then over those 33 years? And second part of the question, how has it changed you to be a member for, for so many years? Yeah, let me, let me ponder how best to dive into that. Um, I think... Mm -hmm. Take your time. <laughs> we, we have, Sam, just as we grow up and mature and change over time, I think the same has happened with Ordo Templariantis. I think in the mm -hmm. early days, um, and particularly, yeah, I think in the early days, there was a much more of a... Um, had a You know, Ray McMurtry lived in the Bay Area, and so I, I guess you could call it more of a, I don't know, a West Coast sort of mentality of that era. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that um, there was there was a lot more free form and lax, and as a consequence, you know, there was, you know, there was, was more of a party vibe, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And when the, the leadership passed from... From Grady to his successor, Hymenaeus Beta, you know, this you kind of had the shift from this kind of Bay Area, you know, you know, again, West Coast hippie sort of vibe to now an East Coast, New York, Greenwich Village sort of intellectual uh, version. And mm -hmm. so I think we, we we see that the the personality of, of who's in charge kind of um, echoes through the ranks and You know, we became more of a, a bookish, you know, sort of lot as a result. Not, not, now, again, not to say that we weren't bookish before, but I think, you know, the, the lot of the party elements started to ebb away and that the more serious efforts to, you know, establish OTO, put everything on a legal footing, be taken seriously, try to be as faithful as possible to Aleister Crowley's vision, mm. to standardize how the rituals are performed. So a lot of these weird sorts of local variations that cropped up around the world, basically, mm -hmm. kind of got eradicated and that we... I know that if you, no matter where you took your initiation, you were seeing the same thing and not some weird right. uh, in a local adaptation. And yeah, I think we also, as a result, see members who are more serious, more scholarly. Mm. And you know, this has led to, for instance, you know, the formation of a subgroup within OTO called Academia Ordo Templi Orientis, where the mm -hmm. members of OTO who are involved in the academic study of Western esotericism are all kind of working together to kind of promote, you know, a bridge between academia and OTO, which is kind of an important thing because it's only been in the last few years or you know, maybe in the last decade or so that um, the, 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 there are actually universities that offer programs in Western esotericism. Right. Yeah, had, had something like that been available to me when I started my studies, I certainly would have done that, but um, that, that was not the case. Um, I, had, I had looked into a create-your-own degree uh, sort of program they had. I wanted to do a cross-disciplinary degree in 
quantum physics, psychology, and philosophy. And I'm glad I didn't do that because I would probably be unemployable. So, <laughs> so just as well, I just stuck to just, and just did the straight, you know, social psychology and, and statistics sort of thing that I did. Right. Um, so I think that's one way in which um, OTO has changed. So we're actually trying to become, you know, again, more and more authentic to Crowley's vision and try to honor that more. Um has the and, internet changed the OTO as well? Sorry to interrupt uh, you, but just... Oh, no, no, that's fine. Um, it's, it's certainly made communication among members possible. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the downsides of the internet, and this is certainly nothing new, but it's that the, the internet, by virtue of having this kind of impersonal sort of connection, makes... Uh, just the trolling and hostility and things like that more mm, mm, prevalent sure. than, than you would see face to face. Especially and, when you talk about a person like Crowley, because he's been so misunderstood and so badly interpreted by many, or maybe also deliberately, uh, maybe that even opens the door to those trolls, etc. much more, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, certainly, you know, we, we see it now on Facebook, but we see when before it was Facebook was LiveJournal. Before it was LiveJournal, it was Usenet. Before it was Usenet, you know, it was, you know, the, the, the bulletin board systems. And I used right. to run, I used to run a, you know, 93 net bulletin board system back in the day. Wow. And <laughs> I used to think that it was, you know, I used to like to like monitor what was going on and chime in with what I knew and, and try to shed some light on questions that were asked. And again, it always led to arguments and things like this. And so I think the benefit of that, <laughs> if you can call it a benefit, was that by the time, you know, the World Wide Web sprung up, I'd already burnt out myself on doing all of that back on the, on the bulletin board days. So mm -hmm. nowadays on the internet, I tried to stay out of all the arguments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. But, but for, for me, um, you know, how that, sh how being in the OTO has changed me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, in some ways it's kind of a, a, a chicken and the egg phenomenon. You know, one wonders, you know, Crowley lays out this very methodical system. You know, you, you can map it out on the tree of life of exercises you can do and, and studies and, and, you know, reading lists and all of this stuff. And, and I think, you know, the idea there, at least, you know, one of the ways I've always looked at, at, magic as a path is that one of the things it does is it teaches you discipline that if you can do this course of study you can memorize things you can you know do elaborate rituals and you can do them at the appointed time that matches the planetary hours and all that that you are basically inculcating a certain kind of discipline which you can then transfer to doing your will and yeah. And the question for me, and I often ponder this, is did Crowley's system teach me discipline or did it appeal to me because I was already a discipline-minded sort of person and, and mm. the structure was something that resonated with me? And I, you know, again, I tend to think it's more of the latter you know, because um, you know, if I think back on my life, um, you know, you know, I was, I was, I was writing a novel when I was, you know, five or six years old. I mean, it was a crappy time travel story with dinosaurs novel, but um, as you expect, but you know, but, <laughs> yeah. you know I, I kind of, yeah. you know, I, I don't know, I kind of came out of the womb doing what I wanted to do in life. Right. And, and so, and, and again, I was, I was very studious and this, this just appealed to me. 
Um, but that isn't to say that you haven't gained you know, benefits from this. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the, the practices of various types have, have benefited me, had made me more introspective and reflective, had me thinking about things I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, you know, the, I, I think the, the spiritual attainments are meaningful and genuine and, you know, with OTO, you know, there, there's, there's something to be said about uh, a bunch of nonconformists and, and many of whom are also introverts getting together and being in a social group. And, you know, it, it, it was wonderful to be with people who are all of your tribe and to make friends not only around the country, but around the world who you just you like immediately and that they are your family because you have this shared set of experiences that you've gone through these initiations. And, and it's a it's a it's a very real bond. And, you know, you, yeah, you have that with other organizations and so on. But. You know, I wasn't part, part of those organizations. I was part right. of this organization. And so, yeah. You know. And probably also, just as you said, as the way you were already before also attracts a bit the same kind of person all over the world and sucks them into that same kind of organization. Don't you think so? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there, you run that risk of kind of creating like an echo chamber. And, um, yeah, sure. You know, and I, and I think, this is this is certainly not unique to which, you know, I think you know pagan and Wiccan groups and you know other groups you know who are in what into Western esotericism mm. are often trying to figure out how to you know encourage and embrace more diversity in its memberships you know and and, and not just kind of you know attract people who who look and think like you. What a wonderful talk it is to speak with Richard Kaczynski about his past and his thoughts and his interests. He's such a passionate man and such a lovely man to talk to as well. We'll go back in a few minutes to speak and to continue that talk with him. But for the time being, as I promised, we are going to listen to a little bit more music. Right, so again, we're going to, to hear a piece that Richard has performed himself um, with another uh, band which is called House of Usher and the piece is called 9-11 and I think the best will be that once again I will let Richard talk himself about that piece and what it means to him and it's a very personal approach there as well so that's what he has to say 9-11 is an instrumental solo from House of Usher's debut album Body of Mind I didn't so much compose it as it just came out of me the day that my sister died in her sleep on September 11. The title refers both to the date of her death and the emergency services phone number in the United States. Okay. 9-11, House of Usher with Richard Kaczynski.
House of Usher and Richard Kaczynski performing 9-11. Okay, let's return to that interview and we will continue to talk about all kinds of different aspects of esotericism, of a personal path, what it means to be member of an occult group or what it means to be a solitary practitioner. Many, many questions that Richard has really interesting approaches and answers for. At the end of the interview, as always, and no, you're used to that now, we will go immediately into the last of the three performed pieces of music today. And this is a very special setup for the music after the show. We are going to play three waltzes and a meditation by Henry Klein. And well, what's the involvement with Richard Gajinsky into that? Well, Henry Klein, of course, he is an OTO co-founder. And when Richard was writing his book, Forgotten Templars, and before he came out in 2012, he interspersed his talks uh, on the presentation with music written by that Henry Klein, that OTO co-founder. So he could let people hear music that probably hadn't been played in over a century. And he likes doing that live, of course, but he is also, yeah, Richard has also recorded those four little waltzes from the 1870s and 80s. Uh, and those recordings, those four little short waltzes, we are going to hear now in a row after the interview, of course. They are called Baiser de Flamme, Ambassadors, Electricity, and On to Car. All right, that will be Henry Klein. And I will tell you a little bit more after the interview about that and about Richard's thoughts on that music. But before all that, we go back now to Richard's home and we continue to speak with him. Here we go, Richard Kaczynski. Very personal question, but I, of course, like many of us, follow also you a bit on your Facebook page, right? I'm not a real okay. Facebook guy. I just do that because because I I try also to promote my my podcast through Facebook, etc. Um, but um, I then often see your postings there, and Facebook likes me because they send me your postings, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you. You might be surprised by the question, but you come over as a rather funny person there, right? You make a lot of um, very, yeah, uh, I like, for example, the, the autocorrector posts that, oh, you okay, do, yes, you know, yes. and, uh, for example, but, but um, the impression I get is that you're not a funny person. You're a very, a rather an introvert person. Is, is that true? What, 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 oh, how would oh, yeah, you yeah. see your, how would you see yourself? How would you, how would you? Is that an, is that the outside that you show there and your the Richard Kaczynski behind that is a bit different? Oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm absolutely a an introverted person. I I I, I was a college lecturer for ten years, so I'm used to standing up in front of a group of you know, right. two hundred people and, and speaking for an hour. Mm -hmm. um, and and so that's a skill that carries over into me talking about you know, Crowley or whatever ever esoteric topic I may be speaking about. Sure. But I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty quiet and withdrawn. All my pursuits, the things I like are very solitary, you know, writing, reading, 
you know, playing, even, you know, playing piano is something you do by yourself, even though I have also played with the band. Uh, but still, you know, the practicing one does, one mostly does by oneself, you know, even when you're in mm-hmm. the band. And, you know, that doesn't mean I don't like being around the people who are close to me, but I also am someone who, you know, needs a lot of time for himself too. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think if, if my posts on Facebook seem to be overly silly or humorous at times, I think it's, uh, it reflects a couple of things. One is that, again, there's just so much negativity and hostility and drama, whether it be, oh, you yeah. know, about our, 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 you know, about occultism, whether it be about politics or whatever, that there's just so much arguing and backbiting mm. that, I don't want to be part of that. And so I, I just want what I post just to be just a breath of fresh air from that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in a way it's also, I don't know, maybe, maybe just a, a way of compensating, you know, that, um, you know, that by, by living a rather quiet and withdrawn life by coming, sticking my toe out, just kind of saying something silly and goofy. Yeah. It's kind of a, a way of, you know, reacting against the, you know, the quietude around me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some of it, and, I th- and a lot of it, I think the, the autocorrect uh, errors that you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, just again, as a writer, I, I love to play with language. And, yeah. and so seeing, you know, one word gets, you know, slightly mistaken for another word because of a, you know, a typing error and see how word, one word changes to another. I mean, that's, that kind of stuff to me is is fascinating. And so I think the result of that is that you see autocorrect errors and awful dad jokes constantly on my wall. You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, I don't post a lot of serious things on Facebook. And I think part of that is that that's not really what Facebook is about for me, at least. And, you know, if people want serious scholarly stuff, they can read my books, you know. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll surprise myself. I just recently posted, you know, I was, I was sharing an article about a, an occult art exhibit and in, in Buenos Aires. And I just started writing. So, oh, this is so cool because, you know, the, the connection between art and the occult has become so prominent lately. And, and I'm seeing this everywhere. And I just started listing all of the art exhibits that I had seen or had heard about that were look that were recognizing the influence of the occult on, on the fine arts. And before I knew it, I had written an essay basically. So, uh, you know, every once in a while, a, a serious thing will sneak out, you know, despite myself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, I, and I do like to bring people's attention to you know, new books that are out there uh, that they might be interested sure. in. So, yeah. you know, I, I hopefully I kind of uh, keep that balance between. Silly well, things. to me, you absolutely do. And I, as I say, I am absolutely like you. I hardly ever post anything myself if it's, if it's not the, the, the next show that I announce on the, on the podcast. <laughs> and, um, but it's always uh, like a fresh, fresh air that when I see your posts there. So oh, keep doing you. that, please. <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Um, well, the first time I came across Richard Kuczynski actually was, um, I think it must be back eight or ten years. You'll tell me exactly when Perdurabo uh, came out 
right? Um, I think the revised edition is from 2012, but I don't exactly, that's the one I read. Um, I don't re exactly remember when the, the, the first edition came out. Yeah, the, the first edition was 2002, and then the revised edition was 2010, I believe. Right. Okay. So it must be around 10 years ago that I read. The, yeah. Yeah. It, it is. I know that this is, this is the 10 year anniversary of the new edition. Woo. <laughs> right. And, and I must say what you said earlier in this interview that uh, there was so much crap around and finally uh, a, a real good uh, biography of Crowley needed to be written. And thank you for doing that because this is really until today, it's it's to me unbeaten the books about Crowley and oh, thank you. it is so clear and deep and um, so but was that your was the twenty the two thousand two edition was that the, the your first publication or uh, in the field of esotericism or were there other books already before that? Now let me think. Um, I, I have to double check, but um, I, th I think I had a few minor things out there. Um, mm -hmm. I had written a like a one-page introduction to a Surefire Press pamphlet that was reproducing the uh, JFC Fuller sale catalog of his library from the sixties, right. mm -hmm. and so I think that was probably my first actual occult-related publication. Mm -hmm. um, I had also the the Falcon Press, who put out Perdurabo, the first edition, had asked me to write a, a chapter for their book, Rebels and Devils. And mm -hmm. I wrote a book on you know, taboo and transformation um, in the works of Aleister Crowley. So looking at how Crowley used taboo and taboo breaking as a way of altering consciousness. And... Also, I don't know if these would necessarily count as occult publications, although in my mind they were. Is that I, you know, as a as a younger person, I was a big fan of role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, right. and I right. shifted over to the Call of Cthulhu uh, role playing game, and I wrote a series of three articles for their publication, their magazine, Different Worlds. And mm -hmm. uh, the, these consisted, and the idea was trying to produce source materials for games set in the 1920s. So I created a one article that was called The Cult Who's Who of the 1920s, which, which is basically just a bunch of short biographies of people like Crowley and Dion Fortune and so on who were prominent in the occult scene. Right. And there was a similar piece about occult organizations in the 1920s. And then I did a third piece that was about um, kind of the legitimate occult underpinnings of the Necronomicon. And I don't know if it was so much legitimate, but essentially that kind of explored the whole Kenneth Grant idea that Lovecraft was actually tapping into something on the astral plane and that, you know, so this wasn't just dreams, but this is actually something from either the astral plane or this collective, mm -hmm. you know, unconscious or something. And so therefore these, these things that he writes about actually have some sort of real magical existence. And, right. you know, I, you know, it was, it was sort of a semi-serious, but not completely serious presentation of that idea, because ultimately it's 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 unprovable one way or the other. But I thought it was I thought just that that framework, you know, the way Kenneth Grant treats it, was interesting enough that hey, you know, someone who's running a Call of Cthulhu campaign could get a lot of mileage out of this 
this idea. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to put that out there for people who may, you know, Call of Cthulhu gamers may may never have read Kenneth Grant, but his idea, you know, definitely, you know, applied to the games. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had those three articles as well. But then, you know, Perturabo was really my, my first big publication. Right, right. And I would also like to talk today a little bit about the book that I admit, and you know that, that I have not read that book, The Forgotten Templars, yet. And I, I'm now doing a call on this interview. I hope you won't mind. I, I, we have discussed this already over the internet that, of course, some books, this book is unfortunately not on Amazon, uh, Europe at least. And um, so that transporting books from the US to Europe has become a very expensive matter. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. So if we find 10 people here on the show in Europe who would like to buy that book, maybe we could do a, a common, you know, a common order and maybe join our efforts together to, <laughs> to, to lower the price of transportation. I really, by all I know about the book, and you're going to tell us a little bit more about it in a minute, and um, this would would be something really very interesting and it's also a european matter what you talk about there it's basically uh, it takes place in europe you even had a, a speech or a, 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 a talk one day in austria about it if i remember well and yes. um, so tell us about the forgotten templars and guys if you want that book then send an email to me at the south hermes web uh, site on the on the, or on the email info at south hermes.com let's join our forum and try to get those books over to Europe. Now over to you, Richard. Tell us about the Forgotten Templar. Well, well, first of all, thank you for trying to round that up. I will certainly be happy to help however I can uh, if something comes of this. But yeah. uh, in the in the meantime, yeah, the what wound up happening when I did the revised edition of Perdurabo was I wanted to go back and I don't know, fact check things and fill in a lot of the blanks and. One of the big things that changed between 2002 and 2010 is that there was just this proliferation of data online, whether it be through Google Books, whether it was through just academic articles being online, things like um, you know ProQuest and, and, and things like that, or there were newspapers being scanned and digitized. And the, the job of doing this sort of searching became so much easier. When I, when I started Perdurabo originally, um, I, one of the first things I did was I made a list of the name of every single person Crowley mentions anywhere in his books, his writings, his, you know, the, his published diaries or whatever material I could get my hands on. And it was a list of about mm-hmm. 700 names. Wow. And and I wanted to find out, you know, do any of these people have, you know, archives of their manuscripts and correspondence, basically? And back, you know, in the eighties and nineties, you know, the only way you could do that was to get out this huge, you know, folio book that was in many, many, many volumes. It was called the National Union Catalog of Manuscript Collections. And you would right. flip through the book and alphabetically it would list people's names and then it would list any institutions that had, you know, any papers by that person. And then I would have to locate the mailing address for an institution and write them a letter and saying, hey, do you have anything in your mm-hmm. archive? 
that would have include letters between this person and Alistair Crowley. And then yeah. wait two months for an answer. Yeah, yeah. And I found some amazing stuff that way that no one ever right. looked at before. But it was a big job. But now all of a sudden I could just log into my computer and do a search for, you know, Miriam Durocks. Does, does her name show up in, you know, a newspaper article anywhere and, and get mm-hmm. hits? Like, you know, Ancestry you know, makes it possible to do genealogical searches to confirm people's birth dates and death dates. And you need to be really careful mm-hmm. about that stuff because, you know, there's, you know, you're talking about the whole world where people have the same name and, you know, live at approximately <laughs> the same time. Um, but it just became so much easier. And so I just amassed all this information. And now, now, now getting back to the, the OTO question mm-hmm. is, um, so in the original, in the original, and I was revising the section that had to do with the history of OTO. Mm-hmm. And so I had this sentence that read something like, OTO was founded by, and then I wanted to have like an adjective. I wanted to have like newspaper reporter and opera singer Theodore Royce with his dates. Mm-hmm. Um, physician and occult writer Franz Hartmann and his dates. Mm-hmm. And Henry Klein, and it was like, well, who was he? What's what's the adjective there? You know, what's the descriptor? Nobody knew. What were his dates? Nobody knew. And so I started digging just to kind of write this one sentence, and I just found just this gold mine of information about Henry Klein. And so I thought, oh, great! You know, I should, you know, when I'm done with Perdurabo, I should repurpose all this information which is not in the book but to write a little monograph about who was Henry Klein and, and, and share that with people but then I found that I couldn't talk about Henry Klein and who he was and what his role in OTO was without actually talking about the history of the OTO and then that meant I had to talk about those other people as well as Carl Kellner and so it, this this thing that was just going to be a little monograph turned into a gigantic book. Carl Kellner being was a member of my actual Masonic lodge that I'm a member of. Well, he was only he only became second degree and then he left again, but still he was that's, there. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, was a humanitas lodge? Is that it? Uh, yes, exactly. Humanitas, oh. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, and along the way of researching. You know, Kellner and Hartman and Royce, in addition to Henry Klein. Again, I just found so much stuff that people hadn't looked at before. And, and so it was exciting. It was just every time I turned over a rock, I found another lead. And mm. and you know, the, the, the story started to come together. And, and um, you know, when... Did Rudolf Steiner also play a role in that research you did there? Or just a minor role? Probably, a, right? a minor role. I, I do talk yeah. about the, that story. Um, there are some people currently who are trying to look deeper into the Steiner connection. Mm. My, my, my impression was that Steiner, through his own spiritual researches, had his own idea of what a secret society lodge should be like. And he kind of wanted to put something together along his own lines, but he also wanted to get permission or authority from someone who was, you know, legitimate, you know, in air quotes. Exactly. Um, And so he went to Royce requesting that permission and Royce basically said, yeah, here, I'll give you a right to misery. I'm going to do what you want. And so he did. Um, there are some people currently doing research that suggests that there may have been a little bit more to that and that this may kind of go back to some of the theosophical 
and Rosicrucian circle mm-hmm. within the Theosophical group um, right. that all those people had in common. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to uh, seeing where some of that other research goes. Because again, we, well, we, his wife, Steiner's wife, was very clear about that in that letter she wrote after his death about his affiliation, wasn't she? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah. So there are some people who tr- tried to claim that. Steiner was an OTO member, and that certainly yeah. wasn't the case because the group, mm. you, know, it's, you know, what the, the situation starts is that you've got this group of guys who want to be able to, to offer all these initiations into these different groups, you know, whether it be, you know, the Scottish Rites, whether it be, um, you know, Societas Rosicruciana, the Swedenborgian Rites, Memphis Mizraim. They just kind of wanted to be like this one-stop shop, you know, for all of that stuff. And yes. as this kind of went along, things kind of got, things kind of evolved. And eventually they decided, you know, we're just going to boil all this stuff down into our own system. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like, there wasn't like a clear cut date where they became one thing versus the other. It's kind of like, the, yeah. like you take a black sock when you have, when there's a hole, you, you, you darn the hole and, and mend it with a yellow thread. And if you keep doing that, when does the sock become yellow? You know, and, yeah. and, and that was the same thing with OTO. It just it, it wasn't like an overnight thing. It was just this gradual evolution. But when when Steiner was involved, it really wasn't functioning as you know what we would call or recognize OTO today. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. All right, right. In any case, it sounds like a really fascinating book and a big book, as you just said, it has become. Yeah, yeah, and, and that uh, was kind of intentional. Um, you know, because there's I reproduce a lot of documentation certificates and the like in the book, and I kind of felt like if this was put out, you know, in a kind of a standard six by nine, you know, book format, these documents would be very tiny and you couldn't read them, and there wasn't much point in reproducing them at all. So I wanted to do this in a coffee table size format. And and because that was kind of an unwieldy format and um, and also because as I was finishing up the book, we were coming up on 2012, which was the centennial year that Alistair Crowley was made head of OTO in the UK. Oh, I wanted I wanted I wanted the book to be out for that for that centennial. So rather than trying to put the book out through a publisher, I just decided to self-publish the book. And that kind of goes back to why it's not available through, you know, an Amazon, Amazon or anything like that. It's just directly right. through me. But mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to have that larger format with the big versions of all these certificates reproduced so that people can actually see them. Sure. No, but uh, that's great. Great. And your latest book, uh, just to jump a bit ahead, um, your latest book is, I think, Panic in Detroit, or am I wrong? Is that the latest or is it something I missed off? Yeah, that that, that similarly is a a revised edition of um, material that was... Basically, it was research material left over from Pernarabo also. Um, Mm -hmm. And this... This dealt with the Detroit period, and again, since I'm originally from Detroit, the fact that Crowley came to Detroit, tried to stir the Supreme Grand Council there, um, was of great interest to me. And you know, I had gone to you know the Detroit Public Library and pulled out microfilms of old newspapers and found just all these accounts of what of essentially this I don't know this moral panic that happened in Detroit around. Crowley and the and the and the trying and the attempt to found you know, OTO in Detroit, and mm-hmm. you know, long story short, is what wound up happening is um, 
this is the bookstore that was distributing Crowley's books, including his new um, Blue Equinox, you know, mm-hmm. um, wound up going bankrupt and be under accusations that the bookstore went bankrupt because of the Equinox, which was not true. But then, you know, people started asking, well, what was the Equinox and what was this OTO thing? And it got, you know, people thought it was some sort of a weird love cult and, you know, just everyone just got freaked out and the postal inspector got involved and people thought that the, the murder of, you know, Desmond Taylor, the director in California, was somehow related. And it, it, it just, it was just really totally crazy. But, you know, tracking down all these newspapers, I mean, front, front page stories, you know, about Crowley and OTO, you know, in, in my hometown, you know, was, was, was just Florida. Sure. So I pulled together documentation on those newspaper articles, the correspondence between Alistair Crowley and um, his, his heir apparent, Charles Stansfield Jones. And I kind of elaborated or expanded the section about this uh, from Perdurabo into a longer essay. And that was put out as something called like the Blue Equinox Journal in 2005, I think. Was, you know, the book it was about 190 pages of you know, primary source material. And since then, I, you know, again, as part of the revised edition of Perdurabo, I found all kinds of additional information, including transcripts of these, these bankruptcy trials. Oh, right. And, and the prosecutors just kept coming back to bringing up Crowley and the Equinox. And so there's all these stories about how did you meet Crowley and, and when did he come to Detroit and what happened? And, and just the idea that this, you know, A, that there's, there's information we didn't see, we hadn't had before, but, but B, just the, just to see the extent to which they, this is like a dog with a bone that would just not let go of this Crowley thing. And, and so the, the idea that so much of this transcript was, was, you know, obsessed with Crowley, I thought that was worth sharing. So, you know, the new edition incorporates that material and, and a bunch of other stuff. They, I, I put together like a, a map of the downtown Detroit area and tried to identify the different places, the, the Masonic Lodge where Charles Stansfield Jones took his, you know, his craft degree initiations, where various people lived, where these bookstores were located and so on. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because the the address system in Detroit actually changed in 1922, so if you tried to go to the the addresses based on you know either true pre 1922 locations, you would never find them. Right. Um, so yeah, just just a lot of just so the the new edition of that book then is well more than twice as long as the original. Um, so mm-hmm. it's really again much much like the new edition of Perdurabo. It's, it's really just a completely different book from the first edition. And, right. and it's, it's just, again, just this, this mass of primary source material about that, to me, very interesting time in, in Crowley's past in, in Detroit. Yeah, sure. Well, sounds great. Sounds great. I have to ask you another question because you you mentioned that earlier and now when you talk about research of your books, um, it comes back to my mind. Um, you said earlier in this interview that nowadays um, the esoteric studies can also be done in, in an academic way. There are certain universities that propose that kind of studies, etc. Not at the time when you started your, your studies. Um, but have you personally ever experienced any 
negative interference, let's put it that way, between you being a well-known esotericist, a member of Kyoto, I mean, you're not hiding it, right? And being an academic on the, on the other side, has that ever caused probably more in the academic world than elsewhere any difficulty for you to be taken seriously or to, to be accepted in that, in that world? Um, no, I, I think I've been kind of fortunate in that regard, although I am aware that there is a, a difference in academia. At least I've been I've given been given the impression, let me say that, that there's a difference mm. in academic approaches in, in Europe versus the United States. And that, yes. um, that that sort of thing is very much frowned upon. And I think it comes. That, that's probably that's probably the reason why I'm asking. Yes. Yeah. And um um, yeah, there, there's this distinction between, you know, I know, knowing your subject matter of being removed and objective about it and, you know, the, the, the emic and the etic um, approaches, you know, this is the jargon terms for it. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I don't know, I, I personally find that to be... I don't know, kind of, kind of offensive, to be honest. Um, mm. You know, no one, no one would tell a a scholar of, of Jewish studies who's also Jewish that they shouldn't be writing about this because they're Jewish. Right. You know, right. you 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 wouldn't right. tell a, 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 a priest or a Jesuit not to write a book about Christianity, you know, or a Buddhist monk not to write about Buddhism. But if you're that's you're an occultist, one, yeah. you you can't write about the occult, and that that's because the, you are taken into it too much. Yeah, yeah, and and I know I I. I I, I think there's a double-edged sword here, and for myself, I've tried very hard not to be an apologist for for Crowley or for for Oti or to sugarcoat things. I, I just want to mm-hmm. report the facts because um, they, those things matter to me. Um, but I can see how my enthusiasm and even my, my even my sympathy can can kind of leak out despite my my best efforts. But on the other hand, you know, the someone who is not a member is just not going to have the sort of intimate familiarity and lived experience of these things to really completely understand. And again, I can think of two two examples of this that I would or metaphors I'd introduce as metaphors. One is that in in doing uh, Forgotten Templars, I had to write a lot of history about Freemasonry and fringe masonry. And when I was writing things about like the Cerno Scottish Rite, you know, that was such a, that's a, it was and is such a sensitive topic, you know, because it was this forever organization that was kind of challenging, you know, the, the established Scottish rites. And that was similarly with, you know, the Memphis and Miserium stuff with John, John Yorker in the UK yeah. and the, you know, ancient accepted right there. And being able to tell their story, but also getting the facts right about masonry, in which I am not a member, but, you know, again, I'm very fascinated by this history and the organization and very respectful of it. But I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. And and so I, I had some friends who were Masons look at the manuscript just to make sure I didn't put you know, my foot in my mouth with anything. And I kind of had the same experience in my studies with Kabbalah that 
while I'm very, very familiar with you know, the Western esoteric version of Kabbalah, when I began studying the more traditional you know, Jewish forms of this. Yeah. Um, I realize is how much of that, you know, assumes a familiarity with, you know, the Talmud and, and just, and just growing up in a, in a, you know, in a, in a Jewish home or with a Jewish lifestyle. And that's not my experience. Mm-hmm. And I realize there's a lot that I was missing and having to play catch up with. And, and I kind of feel it's kind of the same way, um, you know, writing about Western esotericism. I mean, the, on the one hand, okay, maybe you can be too much of an apologist if you're not careful, and I do try to be careful. But on the other hand, if you're writing about something from the outside, you're not going to know what you're missing, you know. And and the people who have kind of immersed themselves in in this world are really going to know their way around it, and and all the and the fine details uh, a lot better. Right. Well, thank you. That. A very nice explanation for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Richard, we are coming basically to the end of this interview, I'm sorry to say, but before I let you go, I I, I want to ask you, um, what are your next plans? What should we be looking for to hear and see from Richard Kaczynski in the next few months or maybe year? Um, What's up? What should we expect from you to come? Well, let's see. Currently, I have in the in the pipeline a annotated edition of Alistair Crowley's book, The Sword of Song, which was originally published in 1904, an edition of only 100 copies. And while it was later incorporated into his collected works, the book has never really been reprinted as a separate volume. And so that's going to be coming out this year from Camuret Press in the UK. And it's going to include a introduction from me as well as a whole bunch of extra end notes where um, I'm explaining a lot of Crowley's topical references to current, you know, things like current events, which hundred years later, no one remembers. Um, well, Press, if I may interrupt you for a second, Comrade Press is the one run by Chris Chudice, Correct. who presented the very first book he did also on Crowley poems uh, last week on the show. So, oh, so nice, nice. Brand new also for our audience here. So great. So we have the connection here. That's, yeah, that's yeah. good news. Yeah. And one, one, and one of the cool things about this edition of Sword of Song is going to be, I've, I've kind of gone back to, Crow's original manuscript and types typescripts, and I'm, I also annotate um, a lot of the you know deleted lines, changed lines, changed words, um, and things like that. So there's mm-hmm. stuff that never made it into print that I at least you know will point people to, so they can see kind of how the book evolved uh, in Crow's mm-hmm. mind. So that's coming out, and um, another thing I'm working on is. Again, one the, the last of the research left over from Perdurabo, which is looking at um, the the secularist movement in the UK. This is this idea that was trying to take religion out of public life, and it's through this this movement that Alistair Crowley, J.F.C. Fuller, and Victor Neuberg were kind of like the the nucleus of Crowley's um, you know young you know AA equinox period, um, you know, they were, they were the core part of that. And so I look at how that group, you know, or how the secularists kind of draw, drew them together and how the, what that group looked like influenced, 
um, things like Crowley's publishing house, the formation of the AA, and Crowley's whole idea of um, scientific luminism. And we'll also reproduce um, a whole bunch of stuff that Crowley, for and Neuberg wrote for these secularist journals, which have never been reprinted before. So it'll be kind of a half half history and half anthology of you know previously not reprinted works. Right. Well, and that's, yeah. In- and after that, I kind of want to get into some some other stuff outside of you know the Crowley world <laughs> and kind of broaden my <laughs> perspective a little bit. Great. Sounds great. Um, well, Richard, thank you for that really lovely talk. Uh, thank you for giving me the time to, to, to talk and no to pleasure. do this interview. It was really great to have you. And well, good luck with all your ideas, ventures and your and also good luck in those rather strange times that we all go through at the moment. Um, yes. all the, yeah, absolutely. All the best to you and uh, well, we'll stay in touch and well, thank you for this. And I just remind people, if you want forgotten Templars, write to me. And if you are in Europe, of course, that's that's I have to add. <laughs> okay, Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you and all of your listeners stay safe and healthy during this time. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye.
Three Waltzes and a Meditation by Henry Klein. Henry Klein, who was one of the co-founders of the original OTO, and he has written those little pieces in the 1870s and 1880s, and we heard them performed on the piano by our guest, our interview guest today, Richard Kaczynski. He says, I particularly enjoyed the introduction to Baiser de Flamme. Unlike the other selections which follow the era's mold of parlor room waltzes, Baiser de Flamme seems to anticipate by 15 years the impressionisms of Debussy's Claire de Lune. Right you are, Richard. And thank you for that really interesting discovery that you let us make through that music. And thank you for a highly interesting talk we were able to have with you. And thank you for your kindness, because it was a great pleasure to talk to you as well. Well, as I'm just saying thank you to everyone, here comes my thank you to you, my listeners, for having been with us here today on this episode 17 OTO and more with Richard Kaczynski. Episode 17 of, of season four, of course. And, uh, well, next week we will return in episode 18 and we will beat a record next week. Yes, indeed, because next week our guest will be Tobias Jordan and it's the first time that the guest is returning a third time to do an interview. But, hey, Tobias has been writing so many interesting books lately and we have been speaking in earlier episodes in two years ago, quite quite by the day almost. We spoke about Alastair Crowley in America, which he had freshly published then at the time. And now this time we talk about another book that uh, has been published a few months ago, which is Alastair Crowley in India. And believe me, it's become a very interesting book. And as always, it's, it's highly interesting to talk to Tobias Churton. So... Do not miss next week's episode, episode 18, Tobias Churchin and Alastair Crowley in India, and a few other things, of course, we're going to talk about as well. Right. Well, I think that was it for today. It was lovely to have you with me here today again. I hope I will see you back then. A little reminder again, if you're interested in the Forgotten Templars, um, Barish Kaczynski, do let me know. And if you live in Europe, of course. And by the way, have you already become a patron? Well, go there and subscribe. Thank you, guys. That was it for today. And the only thing that's left to say is take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.